Praise God. I, you know, I love divine appointments. <laughs> that day in the grocery store, uh, we just love these guys and uh, love the ministry God's given them. They, they, they moved to Lincoln City to take over uh, and to manage uh, R.L.'s mother's hippie store <laughs> over there. And we were in there a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, Stacey and I went down for our anniversary and it just blessed us to walk in there and to see scripture things uh, on some of the stuff. Saw a bowl behind the counter that said prayer requests. And I thought, you know, what a great work that they're doing. So we're blessed to have them here with us. If you have a Bible, open it with me to the book of First Thessalonians chapter 5. Chapter 5. Now, by way of quick review, I've got a map that we're going to put up here for a few minutes. And I want to talk about... now. I do this from time to time because it's important for us to locate these things in our minds. These are real events that happened with real people in real places. They're not just Bible stories. And I know that you don't come with that thought in your mind, but it's just good for me to flesh it out. So here we are. We see the Apostle Paul. He left Antioch with a guy by the name of Silas on his second missionary journey. Traveling across, he got into Galatia into a city called Lystra, where he picked up a young man by the name of Timothy. Now, Timothy came from a godly background. His mother and his grandmother were told in another part of the New Testament were godly women. And so he was really became Timothy or became Paul's protege as time went on. But here is the first time we see him show up. And so he joins Paul and Silas and they're traveling westward across now into Asia, Paul had wanted to go down into Asia to the cities there and to preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit prevented him. He said no. So he thought, well, okay, then we'll go north into Bithynia and preach the gospel there. And the Holy Spirit said no. (laughs) So there they were. They got all the way to the coast, working their way across the continent, the subcontinent there of Asia. They got to a city called Troas, and that's where they hooked up with a guy by the name of Luke. And that's the first time we see Luke show up in the New Testament. He has a major part going forward from there. Developed a lifelong relationship with the Apostle Paul. uh, Believed that he was there with him up until he was executed in Rome years later. So anyway, they go there there in Troas. And and Paul gets a vision one night in a dream. He gets this vision of a man from Macedonia beckoning them to come over to Europe, which is across the Aegean Sea there to come over to Macedonia and to help us. And so they interpret that as God's leading. After all, he'd blocked the way to go north. He'd blocked the way to go south. And so here they are headed west some more. And so they take off the foremen now, Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas. They go off to Europe. They go to the city of Philippi. Now, (laughs) I would love to rabbit trail there. Uh, We've got a lot of ground to cover, but there in Philippi, they begin now, they meet a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, which means she was probably a wealthy lady. And so they meet her and in her household, they all come to the Lord, they come to faith in Christ. And then this beautiful work begins to happen in Philippi. Uh, We're told that a large number of people began to come and give their lives to Christ, come out of that pagan culture. Well, things went sideways for them, and we'd love to talk more about uh, the girl that was demon-possessed, and Paul cast the demon out. And Anyway, they get in trouble with the city magistrates, and they end up being beaten with rods. If you were here with us in our Acts study, it was <laughs> that was a scene. I mean, these guys got beaten literally within an inch of their lives and thrown into the dungeon. It says to the inner prison, which meant that was the deepest, darkest, nastiest place in the prison. 
And so then the, the magistrates figure out, well, Paul's a Roman citizen, so <laughs> that's not a, not a thing to do with them. So they ask him to leave. They say no, and because they wanted to make sure that what happened after that in Philippi, that the church would not be treated the same way that they had been. So that's what gets worked out there. And at that point, they leave Luke and Paul and Silas and Timothy now head westward again, and they go to the capital city of Macedonia, which is Thessalonica. So now, <laughs> trouble just seems to find this guy, uh, and and it's no mistake. It, it, we talk about it, earlier in this book, he talks about Satan thwarting him from coming back, hindering him from being able to come back to them in person. But that's because these things, it, whenever you're taking ground for the kingdom, whenever you're doing things for God, you can expect the attack will come, and it was. So they get to Thessalonica. We're told that they were there for three Sabbaths. That's it. It became very quickly evident to them that the Holy Spirit was being poured out there in in generous measure, and this big, beautiful work of God began to just explode in that place from the beginning. So again, there was a, a small contingent. Now, Thessalonica is a Gentile city, peaked in pagan, they're steeped in pagan idolatry. And, and so these people are abandoning their old pagan ways and their pagan gods, the Greek and Roman pantheons of these little wooden and stone gods that they carted around with them, and embracing the one true God. And in doing so, the Jews, there was a small contingent of Jews in the city, they became kind of upset, not kind of, but really upset. What they and they became jealous, we're told, that they really didn't like the fact that Paul and, and his companions were drawing these huge crowds and they had this little smattering of people that were following them. So they go and they stir up the, the again, the, the government, they stir up the leaders of the city, and they evidently put out warrants for their arrest because they show up at a, a guy named Jason's house, and they and, and Paul wasn't there, thankfully, uh, and they haul Jason in before the, the city's leaders, and they, he has to literally post bail. So we can assume that there's a warrant out for all these guys' arrest, and because of that, Paul and Silas and Timothy decide, you know what, maybe we need to get out of here. I don't know, we don't know what would have happened if they'd have caught them. It wouldn't have been good. So they leave, they go to a nearby city called Berea, and there the Jews from Thessalonica find out what's happening with them there, and they literally chase them down and stir up trouble in that city as well. Now, and remember Berea, the in the book of Acts, we're told that the Bereans were more noble because they searched the scriptures to see if the things that they were being taught by Paul were so. So anyway, at that point, Paul gets hustled off to Athens, but before he goes, he appoints Timothy. He says, look, go back to Thessalonica. I want you to make sure to nurture and encourage and build up this infant, this newborn church. Even though it was a great work that was going on, they really needed to be discipled. And so Timothy, a young Christian himself, goes back to carry on the work while Paul goes to Athens. He goes to Athens. Things don't go that great there. I mean, <laughs> a beautiful sermon on Mars Hill and, and all, but he from there he leaves Athens. He travels 50 miles west to the city of Corinth as he awaits now Timothy and Silas to come back and to meet up with him there estimated, there's no dates given in the Bible, but estimated it was probably up to a year from the time that they had arrived in Thessalonica 
that now Timothy and Silas travel back to Corinth and they meet up with Paul. At that point, they would have given Paul a very, very thorough, uh, a very thorough report of the things that have been going on in that church. So remember though, as Paul is there in Corinth, uh, and administering, he began to, to spread the gospel there with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila who were exiles from Rome. He's there, but he's got the, the, the Thessalonian church on his mind. There's no mass communication, and he knows that this was just an infant work. It was a brand new work, but it was a powerful work, and he doesn't have any point of reference. He has no idea prior to Timothy and, coming, and Silas coming back what's going on with these people. So Timothy shows up, and, and remember, I mean, it would have been a really difficult time for Paul. I mean, if you've ever been in a place where you don't know what's happening somewhere or with someone that you're close to, and, and it just weighs on you, well, these things were weighing on Paul. When the guys finally show up, they, Timothy, as, as evidently as they, he met back up with these guys, Timothy would have given Paul a very thorough report uh, with regard to the challenges that the people in Thessalonica were facing, the, the Thessalonian church. So what Timothy told them is that while they were doing well spiritually, he even calls them a model church earlier in this letter, that they had questions, they had concerns. There was, there was a great deal of persecution going on. There was a great deal of suffering going on. There was a great deal of trouble that these people were enduring. Again, great work of God, Great opposition. That's just how it goes. So that's what's happening with them. Timothy comes back. He gives Paul this report. He says, look, they have some real genuine and sincere questions as to what's going on because Paul had given them a great grounding. He had grounded them in the things, especially things concerning the end times when he was with them. So now he's writing back to them because he can't get to them in person. And he writes back to them to address their concerns. Their major concern was, Look, and we don't know if it was because of the persecution or the suffering, but some of the people in Thessalonica were dying, some of the people in the church. And so that left them with a question that just hung on them. It's like, what happened to them? We were expecting the Lord to return. And folks, throughout the New Testament, the people lived as though Jesus would return in their lifetimes. I mean, that was 2,000 years ago, and that ain't a bad idea today. We're going to look at that more as we go. So... The big question was, what happened to them? Now, you know, my my husband died, and he said he believed in Jesus, but we were expecting the Lord to return. So what happened to him? What what took place when he died? Good question. And so Paul addresses that. In chapter 4, we looked at, he says, look, look by no means are you going to have to worry about this. The, the, you, you don't have to be concerned because the, the people that have died, they're not forgotten. They're not missing out on anything. When the Lord returns, those who have died will experience resurrection. And then the living believers will experience rapture. We looked at that extensively, that they will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That word raptus in Latin, which is the word harpazo in Greek, it is there. There's no way you can make it not be there. It's there. He says, well, those of us who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air but the dead in Christ will rise first. So he gives instruction, backs up the things he had already told them. Now, he says at that point, he says, and so we will ever be with the Lord. Talked about, there are some views that say that the church 
goes up and then they meet the Lord in the air and then they come back, that the second coming and the rapture are one event. I don't believe that the Bible indicates that. There are people that have that view and you are welcome to have that view. You got to understand when we're looking at prophecy, we're aggregating the scripture. In other words, we're, we're going to different parts of the scripture and we're building a case. If you look at in legal circles, if somebody commits a felonious crime, they commit a felony, the bar is beyond a reasonable doubt. All right. That's, that's what it takes to convict them of that. If you look at a civil case, it's, it, it's, it's, it's beyond a reasonable doubt and it's by a preponderance of the evidence. So what we look at here and the reason people come up with different views is because there's a preponderance of evidence. I believe that the evidence is compelling, and we'll talk about that more as we go along. The evidence for the rapture of the church being separate from the second coming of Christ, I believe it's very compelling, and I believe that the church is in heaven when the day of the Lord, which we're looking at again this morning, comes about. If you have a different view, you are welcome to it. It's just not going to be taught here, because I really do believe that these things, in the order that we're looking at, are the way that they come about. So Paul is also challenging the Thessalonians. Uh, he's saying, look, you don't need to be fearful of the things that you see coming upon the world. You don't need to be fearful in the midst of the persecution and suffering that you're going through because you have a different destiny than those who will experience the day of the Lord. So here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul lays out a series of contrasting destinies. Uh, this patch, it divides between the church, those who belong to Christ, and the lost, those who do not, those who are Christ-rejecting. And folks, we live in a Christ-rejecting world. There's always a remnant of people that believe. But by and large, we live in a world that is rejecting the things we're talking about this morning. We'll talk about and look at why that is and look at the things that are connected to that as we go along. So, Two weeks ago, we looked at the first three verses of chapter 5 here in First Thessalonians. Before we proceed to, to verse 4, I want to go through them again because they set the context for what's taking place. And context is everything. Remember that. Yeah, it, it, uh, Darren had a, a ditty that he used the other day or last week about context being important. And the, the I have a separate one, but it's the same, says the same thing. It's that a text without a, without a context is a con. And you can, people can, they can twist the scriptures to say all kinds of weird things if you don't observe the context. So let's start in verse one. He says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Now, remember we talked about pronouns last time around, and and I'm talking about weird pronouns that people are doing out there today. But when he says we and us, he's talking about the church. When he talks about they and them, he's talking about the unbelieving world. And that goes, that runs through this passage. So pay attention to that because, and if you use that to interpret this passage, you'll interpret it correctly. If you forget that, you can end up with all kinds of wacky, weird interpretations. You even get under condemnation about things that you are very secure. If you are, if you belong to Christ, you're secure in that. So understand that going in. So 
when he talks about the day of the Lord, what's he talking about? What does that mean? What is this day of the Lord? I mean, we talked about in the Old Testament is repeated over and over and over again. And each time it is a reference to the end of time, it is a reference to the end times, to the time when God will judge the world. In Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, Jesus tells us that there will be a lead up to when this prophecy, the day of the Lord, kicks into high gear. All three Gospels say the same thing. The first thing he says is don't let anyone deceive you because deception will come. doesn't say deception might come. It will come. There will be people who will intentionally deceive in the lead up to these events. The second thing he talks about is there will be famines, pestilences, which is deadly infectious diseases, earthquakes in various places. Now, What he says to that, the qualifier to all of that, he tells him, look, these are not, this isn't the end. These are birth pains. This is labor. It's like when labor starts, (laughs) the baby doesn't pop out immediately. But you need to understand that things are getting into position. Things are getting, they're, they're being put into alignment for this prophecy to be carried out, the day of the Lord. He also tells him, look, it's, don't be fearful about this. Because this is something that has been orchestrated in the mind and heart of God from eternity past. And if you belong to him, you have no reason to fear as you see things around you. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't take much to look out and to realize our world is unraveling every day. Evil is unmasked. Now, it used to be that people would do that in a closeted way, that the, the deeds of darkness were concealed. It's out in the open. I look at what people are doing, coming after our children, coming after, I look at what is the world going to be like if the Lord tarries for my granddaughters? What's going to, what is it going to be like for those of us that are younger as we embrace these things? I pray that the Lord comes quickly. It's all a lead up to what we see in Revelation chapter five. There, the apostle John, in exile on the island of Patmos, which is right off of the coast of Asia, not far from Ephesus, uh, in the Aegean Sea. He's in exile there, and and he is taken up by the Lord into heaven. He is taken up and given this powerful revelation, the apocalypse. Darren talked about it last week. Apocalypsis, which means the revealing. It's not revelations. It's, It's singular. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ in his glory. You got to understand that because the apocalypse, and we think about apocalypse, and yeah, there are apocalyptic events in there, but the apocalypse itself is Jesus Christ in glory. It's the revealing of him at the end of the age. So in Revelation chapter five, there's John. He's taken up to the throne room of God. And there John sees that that on the throne there that God is there he has a scroll in his hand and and he begins to weep he says no one is found that's worthy to open the scroll to take the scroll and then to open the seals and then we're told that one as a lamb with the marks of slaughter still on his body talking about Jesus himself he steps up and he takes the scroll now as he begins to open the seals on that scroll That's when the day of the Lord begins, because each of those seals is the pouring out of God's judgment on this earth. It's the pouring out of God's wrath on this planet. And it is serious, 
it will be intense when that takes place. I want you to understand too that even though we look around and we see things unraveling the way that they are around us, that everything for now is restrained. Uh, if you look again, going off, and I wish we could spend more time on it, perhaps we will at some point, in Revelation chapter 6, we see the four horses of the apocalypse. Now the first thing that happens in Revelation 6 is the Antichrist comes forward on a white horse because he's there to deceive the nations. You'd think, well, you know, Jesus is on a white horse. No, that's not him this time. That's later in the book, I think it's what, chapter 19. But my point is, is that the first thing that happens, the Antichrist is revealed and there is no longer any restraint on deception. Right now, deception is restrained. And, and, and you know, <laughs> I remember when I was a boy, my mom used to like to go to the track. <laughs> and she liked betting on the horses. And, and, and there was a young boy, you know, she'd take me out. We lived in Southern California. We'd go out to Santa Anita uh, racetrack, which is not too far from our house. And, and I just remember marveling. I would watch these horses and they would come out onto the field and they had this big long thing with a series of gates in it. And they'd pull those horses up behind the gate and the horses would be like tense because they're not trained to wait. They're trained to run. And, and they're, they're, it's like they're tense and there's this tension and they're waiting for that bell to ring and the gate to swing open so they can do what they've been trained to do and that's to run. But until that point, they're restrained. That's the kind of tension that's going on in our world today. There is a tension there. It is, it is, and it is intentional. And God is restraining these things until the appointed time. Now, Looking at the four horses, just uh, just a couple of them. Obviously, the white horse. We talked about that. The next one, the black horse. Um, with him, war goes forward without restraint. And, and and folks, it will be absolutely nightmarish when these things begin to unfold and when they begin to happen. So, as I mentioned, right now, things are restrained. There's tension there, but it's restraint. When the day of the Lord comes, that restraint comes off. And, and, and we'll look at, when we get into Second Thessalonians, we'll look at the restrainer. When the restrainer is removed, who's the restrainer? The Holy Spirit of God. And when he is taken out, all hell breaks loose. And I mean, it is going to be unimaginable. Well, maybe not unimaginable because there's pretty graphic descriptions of what happens here in this book. As for the Thessalonians, Paul had evidently given them instruction with regards to the timing of the events of the end times while he was with them. Remember, he talks about the times and the seasons, the dates and events. That's what we looked at last time we were together. Now, his intention here is to reinforce that instruction as he makes a clear delineation between you and them. Uh, he contrasts those de destined to be with the Lord and those destined to wrath. So as we look at these contrasts, we're going to just unpack that in the rest of our time here this morning. I want to look at these because these, again, they're contrasting between a Christ-rejecting, unbelieving, godless, evil world and the people of God. The first that we see coming out of these first three verses is knowledge versus ignorance. So what we see here is the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. It'll be sudden, surprising, shocking, 
and it'll be severe. So, again, by contrast, the world is ignorant of God's plans because the world has rejected the God whose plans they are. They don't care. They've rejected his word. Second point of contrast, expectancy versus surprise. And I'll tell you what, fallen, we as fallen humans, we are really good at, <laughs> we're really good at something that we call denial. And folks, humanity, we live our lives in denial of the fact that it's going to end. And that's part of why it's hard to reach people because, you know, we think, well, let, we just look at life like one day is going to be just like the last and tomorrow will be just like today. And, but you know, folks, there's an end to that. Don't, please, if you are living in denial of the fact that there is an end to all of this, come out of denial. Reckon that in your own heart and life that there's an end to this. On the surface, there will be an air of peace, safety, when the day of the Lord comes. So while the church waits for uh, the coming of Christ for his bride, the world mocks in disbelief will be completely caught off guard when the day of the Lord comes upon them. You know, there's a reason why Jesus says there in Matthew, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. He's talking about this. He's saying, look, they just got up. They were eating and drinking, giving in marriage, doing the whole thing. They were just living. It was just another day. And then God closed the door to the ark and the rain came. That's how it'll be with the day of the Lord. There's no denying it. When, not if, the day of the Lord comes, there'll be no de- denying, no escaping the reality of it. There'll be no negotiating uh, when that comes. I mean, the day or the time to negotiate is done. Remember, we looked at, he, and he uses the, the metaphor here of a woman having a baby. There is no way that that lady ain't having the baby. When labor starts, she is having a baby. It doesn't matter how much she doesn't want to be pregnant. She is going to have the baby. That's it. That's just how it goes. And that's why he uses that here. He uses that to signify, look, there is no way this won't happen. This will happen. Be absolutely assured of it. It is certain it will take place. So, and we talked about that. Uh, it's, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to go any other way. And at that point, just as when Noah, when Noah's ark, when, when God, the time was finished for that, just as when the, the door was closed and it began to rain, it was too late to negotiate. It was too late to do anything about it because at that point, judgment was coming. Wrath was being poured out. So, I want to carry this example a step further and talk about false labor for a minute. I think they're called Braxton Hicks contractions. Some of you ladies, I see you nodding your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's when labor pains come about. However, other aspects of labor, true labor, don't materialize. So it's false labor. That's why when we see a sign here or a contraction there, I mean, and we see them, don't we? Uh we simply don't have enough information to predict when these things will come about. And it's, it is a fool's errand to think that we can. And there are kooks out there that will try to tell you when and who and all of that. And folks, strongly advise, do not listen to them. Remember, deception will come. Verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, you're not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. 
You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. That leads us to our third point of contrast. And that's light versus darkness. Now I want to talk about this because there's much in the New Testament with regard to darkness and light. In context here, Christ's coming, as far as the world is concerned, will be sudden and unexpected, as I mentioned, like a thief in the night, but not so for the believer. We're looking for him to come. Unbelievers are in the dark, and that's why he uses this metaphor. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5, they tell us that their understanding is darkened. Talking about unbelieving, Christ-rejecting people here. In in, in John chapter 3 and and Ephesians chapter 5, they tell us that they love darkness. They choose darkness. They want darkness. Matthew chapter 8 tells us they're headed for eternal darkness. But the contrast, by contrast, the Christian is associated with light. God is light. John chapter 8 tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. Ephesians 5 tells us that the Christian is a child of the light. At one time that he was not in darkness, but that he was darkness itself. So the question then becomes, what changed? What's the transaction that comes about through which I'm no longer identifying with darkness, but with light? And that change is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Picking it up in verse 3, Paul's in the middle of he's talking about uh, light and darkness. He's talking about the gospel being veiled. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. That's very important in this passage. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, but what it's saying is that if you understand what I'm saying this morning, and you and you are connecting that with spiritual terms, and you belong to Jesus, that is because you have the light of God within is giving you understanding. Part of what the Holy Spirit does is bring the light of God, illumination to our hearts. There's no way. When he talks about, when Jesus talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says, look, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and that he will guide you into all truth, and he'll bear witness of me. How does he guide us into all truth? Because he enlightens us. We can only understand his word through the lens of the light of God. What he's also saying here is that spiritual blindness is a thing. And folks, (laughs) understand, this dynamic is not the devil made me do it. You know, you have a part in it if you are choosing spiritual blindness because it happens when someone cooperates with the God of this age and chooses unbelief. It's an act of our will. In that blindness... The gospel is veiled. Essentially, and nobody will say this out loud, but essentially the the transaction that's happening there is I can't see it because I choose not to look. And that's a real thing. That's spiritual blindness. By contrast, having believed, God has commanded light to shine out of the darkness in our hearts. Praise God for that. 
So since we as Christians are children of the day, we ought to live in the light. There's no room for, I'll tell you what, the, the, it, the longer I walk with the Lord and, and the more I see that my own heart, there's a predisposition towards you know, compromise, don't do it. Don't do it. We'll talk about that more as we get to the end of the message. But folks, we choose to walk in the light or we choose to walk in darkness. Be very clear on that. It's a choice. It's an act of our will. God's will is that we live in an attitude always being ready for Christ's return. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So, Paul continues this contrasting these two groups of people here. And the fourth point of contrast is that one group he identifies as being drunk and asleep. By contrast, the other group Paul identifies as being awake and alert. So as we look at verse 6, he begins that. Remember, again, pronoun use, he says, let us not sleep. He's addressing this to believers. Folks, I don't want to be asleep at the wheel when he comes. He says, look, let's not, let's not be asleep as others, as non-believers are. He says, don't be like them. Don't live like them. Don't act like them. Don't behave like them. Believers must not live in the dark as unbelievers do. Really, the bottom line in this is, un- is that living in the dark, unbelievers are spiritually indifferent. Don't care. Really. Not a thought about these things. They live as though there will never be a judgment or they come up with all kinds of excuses on how everybody's going to go to heaven. You hear that a lot out there in the world. Oh, we're all, I'm good and we're good and everybody's good and God loves everybody and we're all going to heaven. That's just not the gospel. That's not the message of the Bible. That's not the message of the cross because God went to great expense to purchase our redemption. Whatever the case is, being in the dark means being in the dark spiritually. And folks, unbelieving, the unbelieving world out there is willfully, spiritually ignorant. It's a choice. By contrast, those who are, to those who are of the night, Paul admonishes the Thessalonians to not only be watchful, but to be armed. So the apostle, now here he employs a favorite metaphor, that of spiritual armor. We see this exhaustively talked about in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul goes into the full armor of God. He only mentions two here. and They're the breastplate to protect the heart and the helmet to guard the head. Both are defensive weapons because the reference here is not so much to the believer's conflict with evil, These apply to his being in a defensive posture against being surprised. Because he's saying, you don't have to be surprised by these events when they start to come about. You don't have to be surprised when when this kicks into gear. Notice, these spiritual weapons are rooted in the three graces that he talks about at the very beginning of this letter. Faith, hope, and love. So faith here, obviously, is faith in Christ. By love, he's speaking not so much of love towards God, but love towards man. Because in the context here, he's indicating that it's our love for other people that needs to compel us 
to, I mean, folks, I want to sound the alarm to people in my life. I want them to understand because I love them, I'm willing to risk. Because I love them, I'm willing to lay it on the line and say, look, you might not like the way I'm talking. You might label me a religious kook, but I don't want you to experience what's being talked about here. I don't want you to go through this time of great trouble that's going to come upon the earth. Church will be gone. But unless you give your life to Christ, that's what's ahead. The breastplate guards the heart of a Christian against the assaults, influences, influences of evil. In the same way that a breastplate on a soldier guards his heart in a physical way. But this is important stuff. Understand, yeah, these are metaphorical, but they are for us to apply, to put on in our lives. He talks about the helmet here, the help, the hope of salvation. Now, again, looking at the context here, because context determines what he's talking about here. And what he's talking about here is two groups. So when I look at salvation, there are two sides. What have I been saved from? Yeah, and I've been saved from a lot. I've been saved from myself. But what have I been purchased from? And what am I saved to? So what he's talking about here is being saved from darkness, saved to light. Verse 9, For God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So in context, Paul is essentially saying that either way, we win. Whether it's through physical death, and then being resurrected in that in that moment when the dead in Christ rise first to meet the Lord in the air. Those of us, and if we're, but if we're alive at that point, it, it's gonna. And when that comes about, either way, he says, if you are if you are a believer in Christ, if you belong to Him, either way you win. So you might be thinking about too, and, and here's some logic that comes against this because the Bible says you know, we're talking about this time of great tribulation that's going to come upon the world, the day of the Lord. And so as we consider that, you might think, well, you know, the Bible says that in the world you'll have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. And yes, we will, won't we? And Or do we presently? I mean, we go through stuff. Sometimes we go through a lot. Church has always had tribulation. Why would the last generation of the church escape tribulation? This is the argument. Uh, if every generation of the church has been in tribulation, that's backwards logic. The truth is, the tribulation in the book of Revelation begins because Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, opens the seals. It's a whole different category of tribulation. It's a whole different picture of trouble. Here's the real logic behind that. Why should every generation of the church escape the wrath of the Lamb who paid for them with his blood and the last generation of the church be subject to the wrath of the Lamb? Will the church go through the tribulation? I say no. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical that he would spare every generation, but that last generation has to go through it. I, I just don't see it in the scripture. The church, capital C church, escapes all of that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. This entire passage, it's dividing. And again, we've got to keep our focus on what he's saying here. It's dividing between the church and I don't know, we talked about this, we're not talking about a building, we're talking about the set-apart ones, because that's what ecclesia means, it means the set-apart ones, the church, you and I are the church, and what he's talking about here is this is, there's a clear delineation between the church and the lost. The reason we're not appointed to wrath is because the church has already been taken to heaven, 
when the day of the Lord comes. In Revelation chapter 5, I'm going to look at something here. I thought this was fascinating. I had not seen this before I was preparing for today. You see that the church is in heaven before the seals are open. Now, I've understood that. Before the day of the Lord begins, let's look at Revelation chapter 5 together. Verse 8, he says, Now when he, and he, he here is a reference to the Lamb or to Jesus, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us by the to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Sounds like believers to me. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, there's a popular argument out there in theological circles that claims that this is not the church represented here in Revelation chapter 5. And here's the claim that is made. They make the claim that the book of Revelation was translated from 93 manuscripts and only 23 of them say us. If you look in verse 9, he says, you were slain and have redeemed us by to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 10, and you have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. You take that out for you were slain and have redeemed to God by your blood out of every tribe, da, da, da. And you have made kings and priests. So you can take that out and leave the church out of this passage. However, let me tell you what's going on here. What they failed to mention out of the 93 manuscripts, only 24 of those manuscripts, because these are fragments. Some of them are manuscripts, some are fragments. Only 24 of them have Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 in them at all. And 23 of the 24 say us. That's compelling. I mean, that's absolutely compelling that the church is there when God wraps all this up. Again, if you have a different opinion, you are welcome to it. We love you. We're not here to make, to argue. I, and I, I, many times in the past, it's like if somebody wants to argue about these kind of things with me, my, my favorite tactic, I guess, it, 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 because I'm, I'm not going to divide with my brother or sister in Christ over these things, is, is I'll ask them, well, what side would you like for me to argue from? And, and that generally kind of lets the wind out of the sails because they're kind of jacked up and want to make sure that I understand their point. It's like, well, no, I understand both points. And I understand, again, when you look at prophecy, you're aggregating the scripture. You're taking different pieces of scripture from different parts of the Bible, and you can make a case. But in this particular case, when I came across this, I thought, my goodness, yeah, there's only, you know, 24, or there are only 23 that say us, but they forget to leave out that only 24 have this passage in it. So for me, when I look at that, again, I'm not a Greek scholar, I'm not a manuscript scholar, but I do have trustworthy sources for this stuff. And I love it when I come across things like this because it just builds my faith that the church isn't going to be here. The only way that we're not going to be overtaken by the wrath which comes upon the world is for us to be removed first. Verse 11, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Again, I, I, I make the argument, he ends, ended chapter 4 with the same statement, comfort one another with these words. Here in chapter 5, he says it again. If he is making a case for the church to go through the day of the Lord, I do not see where he's saying, I want you to be comforted by this. It just doesn't make sense. 
it escapes the entire context of the passage. So, two destinies. One brings great comfort. The other, anything but. The word therefore, as we see here in verse 11, it always looks back at what has just been said. So in looking back at this entire section, Paul is giving one assurance after another that the Thessalonians' destiny is not for wrath, but for eternity in the presence of the Lord. Their destiny, as well as ours, I firmly, sincerely believe, is not to be here on earth when Jesus begins to peel back the seals on that scroll. However, the destiny appointed to an unbelieving, spiritually blind, Christ-rejecting world is sobering, frankly, awful to contemplate. I don't know about you, but I've got people, and I'll tell you what, part of what God challenges me on as I, as I love the people in my sphere is do I love them enough to risk? Do I love them enough for them to, again, to say, yeah, John, you're just kind of off the reservation with all this stuff. And yeah, I don't, I, I don't walk around. I'm not going to put on a sandwich board and march up and down the street and be some kind of nut. But at the same time, we have to be, we have to respond to what God's word puts forth. And there's a place where we just become honest and vulnerable with people say, look, if you're not in, you're out. And if you're out, I can't imagine greater trouble. Your eternal destiny is at stake. We live in a world that, by and large, is in that place. The destiny that's appointed to an unbelieving, spiritually blind, Christ-rejecting world is really sobering. But for now, that door remains open. Praise God. We don't know how long it will be. So as we wrap up, we're going to look at coming to the Lord's table. We're going to receive communion this morning as we do uh, on the first Sunday of, of each month. Uh, I'd like to have, uh, let's see, Darren, could you and Corey, would you guys pass out the elements for us? You can get your guitar when we're done. As these guys pass out the elements, I want to I wanna look at some things as as we wrap up the message today. By way of application, it's something I think that is really important to keep in mind as we look at these things is when in doubt, stick with the big picture. Folks, we go through times where life simply overwhelms. We go through times where we go through great trials, trouble, tribulation in this life. Not the great tribulation, not what's being talked about here in the day of the Lord, but that doesn't minimize the fact that we go through really stressful, hard, hard things. One of the things that I do when I'm going through it, when I have things pressing in on me, and there are times where life just seems to press in on every side, as I keep in mind that there's an end to this. I keep in mind, for the believer, that's a blessed hope that we have. Because life comes to trouble, sometimes lots of it. But if you belong to Jesus, there is an end. And that's when we go to be with Him. Even when it's tough, even when it's really tough, understand, big picture, the Lord has your life in His hands. And eternity is closer today than it was yesterday. As we come to the Lord's table, eternity is closer this month than it was a month ago. Many times as a pastor over the years, something that has just been pretty fundamental in dealing with people and sharing with people who are going through great trials 
is to just encourage them, look, it won't always be like this. It will shift. It will change. Those of us that know the Lord prepare ourselves for that time. Those that don't really live in a hopeless existence, and that's where we can offer that hope. But when you're in doubt, stick with the big picture. Understand this will come to a close. This age will and get out of denial. If, if you're living like one day is going to be like the last, understand there's an end to it. And for us, that's glorious. That's powerful. Second thing I want to talk about here is say no and mean it. <laughs> I remember, in other words, armor up. That's what he talks about here. Put on the armor. Now, back in the 1990s, there was an ad campaign that was just say no to drugs. You guys remember that? I remember that. It was like, and I, I, would, I had teenage kids at the time, and frankly, I thought those ads were just plain lame. It's like, my kids are going to be at a party, right? The drugs are going to start getting passed around. They're going to go, I saw a commercial on TV. No, this is not, it wasn't real. It's just not practical. And so what I, I had, I had a different approach and I will confess it was very unorthodox. I'm not suggesting you do this, but it worked with my kids. So that's <laughs> how it was. And my approach with my kids was honest. I never, I'll never forget, took my, my, it's like 13 or 14 year old daughter, uh, for a drive in my truck one day and I said, honey, I want to talk to you about drugs. And she's kind of like rolling her big brown eyes and, yeah, okay, dad, yeah, teaching us about that in school. And I said, no, serious, I want to talk to you about drugs. And she said, okay, what, dad? You know, that exasperated teenage tone and all. <laughs> and I said, I just want to tell you that drugs are fun. She goes, what? And she started kind of freaking out. Like, what are you saying? You saying I should become a drug addict? What's going on, Dad? What, da, da, da. You know, and, 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 I mean, her eyes are like that big, and she's looking at me, and, and and I said, wait, 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 wait. I just want you to understand something. Nobody's telling the truth out here. If people, there wouldn't be a plethora of drug addicts out there if there wasn't something that was attractive about that to them. But honey, you got to understand that's the hook. And you can, if you decide you want to start using drugs, you better be really careful because you have them and you keep doing it. And pretty soon you're going to wake up one day and they'll have you. And then you're in bondage. Then you're enslaved. Countless people have been enslaved in that way. Did that with both of my kids. And <laughs> praise God, neither one of them ended up on drugs. Point is, sin is like that too. Let's be real. I mean, it wouldn't be tempting if there wasn't some gratification connected to it. And and I, I think about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, Moses, he chose to be identified with these, these Hebrew slaves rather than endure the passing pleasures of sin. Sin is, sin is fun. That's the hook. You understand? And so say no and mean it. And folks, we don't have to try to do this in our own power. That's not what God's word puts forth. And the difference for us is, as believers is that the spirit of God is working on our behalves as we face those temptations to sin. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able 
but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Stay away from the hook. You find yourself being tempted. If If you've been walking with the Lord for any time at all, you know what that feels like, that pull that enticement, that, oh, you know, that that thing, kind of dizzying feeling. I'm talking about feelings, but that's that's that part where you have to say, you know what, I'm not going to go down that direction. I don't want to see my life or anyone's life that I'm connected with living in a state of compromise when the Lord comes or living in a state of compromise when this physical body uh, is laid down. Paul's real clear here. Live your life in the light. Again, the Apostle John says, walk in the light as he is in the light. And don't live your life compromised. The last thing uh, is, what is your destiny? What's your destiny? We've looked at two of them this morning. There are only two. There is no fence in the kingdom. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're what? You're against me. That's because, you know, man... We like to make, we like to invent a fence. Like, well, you know, maybe I'm sort of for, but not all the way. And no, he says, look, you have one of two destinies. You're either destined to eternity in the presence of God forever. That's what eternity is. And yeah, I, I kind of head trip on that sometimes because eternity, I don't think is a whole bunch of days. <laughs> I think it's, it's just something that we're just not wired to understand or destined to wrath destined to eternal separation from God. Not my opinion. That's what it says here. So what's your destiny? And I'll tell you what, folks, your eternal destiny rests upon the answer to that question. And if you belong to Christ, awesome, wonderful. You're good. And I believe that we can be secure in his hand. So don't walk out of here. If you know that you belong to Christ, don't walk out of here wondering about it. That's not the point here. The point is, is if you know that you don't, there's a transaction that's very simple that involves turning from the old life, repenting of sin. That's what repent means. Turn from the old life. Embrace Christ. Allow him to fill you up and to become a part of his family, to fill you with his Holy Spirit, and to bring you into this fellowship of believers that we call the church. It's one or the other. We choose that destiny. Essentially, though, the most important thing is if you're, if that's questionable for you, don't put it off. The stakes could not be higher. As we go to the Lord's table, by the way, if you don't know the Lord this morning and you want to, you can come to his table with a clear conscience by simply praying a prayer that's something like, God, please forgive me for the life I've led. And I ask Jesus to come into my life, into my heart, and to give me a new life. It's that simple. And then you come to the Lord's table. He says to do this often. What he does in this, why would he give us the bread and the cup? Because it's very clear instruction from the Lord at the Last Supper there in the upper room that he says, look, I want you to do this. Because we walk by faith. We walk and faith is the the substance of things, or the essence of things, uh, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's what it says in Hebrews 11.1. The point is, is it's intangible. He gives us this one tangible point of connection. He says, look, I want you to do this so that you have a tangible point of connection to connect you with me. And I want you to do it a lot. 
don't ever let this become a religious ritual, please. Don't ever let this become, that's what our church does on the first Sunday of the month. Yeah, that's when we do it. But we don't do it because it's a ritual. We want to do it because we want to remember the life that he laid down, that we could take his life on us, that we get life because he died, that we, the Bible says in Second Corinthians that he became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And so as we remember the bread, we remember the body of Jesus that was broken for us on that cross. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the bread, as we consider, Lord, that you sent your son long ago and yet still as relevant today as the day that he did it, you sent him to purchase our souls, to purchase eternity on behalf of anyone who would believe. And God, we're so grateful that we could come to your table this morning. So grateful, Lord, that, that we can identify as being children of the light because it's your light has been imparted to us. Father, words just aren't adequate to express the thankfulness we have. Come before you now, humbly, and with a grateful heart. Thank you, Lord Cross. Let's take the bread. As we consider the cup, 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus, after he had given them the bread, said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. It said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's a covenant? It's an agreement. It's a contract. He says, look, this is the new contract. No longer will it be on the basis of law. Do it and live. And by the way, you can't do all of it because nobody ever has. But now it's on the basis of grace. It's done. Therefore, love. What what a bargain. What a complete, mind-blowing act that he would do all of that work so that he could not only draw us into his kingdom, but that he could give us life. And as the Bible declares, life more abundantly. As we consider the cup, representative of the blood of Christ poured out for us. Again, grateful hearts. Let's pray. Father, as we take the cup now, words escape me so often, Lord. We come to your table. We do this in obedience, Lord, but also as a tangible reminder of the work that was accomplished on our behalves, of the fact that, that that Jesus, you went to that cross for me personally and for each one here, each one within the sound of my voice personally. It's personal. Lord, we're grateful beyond words for the work that you've done, that you could draw us into your kingdom, that you would declare us to be children of light because it's your light in us that counts. And Father, as we work and as we live in a a darkening world where we see that things are restrained but just barely at times we lord we look up for our redemption draws near we're grateful this morning for the cross we're grateful lord that we could look at passages like this and draw great hope from the fact that it's all in your control and it's all according to your plan and that we look forward lord with expectation to that time when we'll be with you and all of this will be thank you father let's take the 